1, verse 15. If you have your Bible, turn with me there to Acts chapter 1, verse 15. As we began last week studying the book of Acts, we saw that Jesus instructed the disciples to go and pray, to go to the upper room, to wait in prayer for the promise of the Father, which was the power of the Holy Spirit. The call of God cannot be done without the power of God. So this group, group of disciples, they gathered together for 10 days of prayer. Could you imagine just putting stop on your life for 10 days to seek the Lord to pray for his power? What we're going to read this week is there's one decision that they make prior to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. It was picking a replacement to Judas, and then we'll see in chapter 2 the giving of the power of the Holy Spirit. So would you join me in prayer, and let's ask that God would bless our time in his word. Father, we thank you for giving us your word, and it's with joy that we come into your presence tonight. We think of the fact that our debt is paid completely, that we're forgiven tonight, that we're your sons, we're your daughters, that our life is wholly yours. And we ask that you would really pour out your spirit upon our lives, that you would bring clarity to what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to walk in the Holy Spirit. But we desperately need you, Father, to fill us with your power to live out this Christian life. Maybe you bring something to to the Lord tonight that's on your heart, whether it's praise or it's burden. And just take a few moments and wait upon him. And wherever you're at tonight, just give that to the Lord. Father, we thank you that you are loving, that you're good, that you're powerful, that you're able to handle our concerns, our burdens. We give those to you in Jesus' name, amen. So chapter one, verse 15, and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said. So this is quite a prayer gathering, 120 that are committed for 10 days to seek the Lord in prayer. Peter gets up, And he's got something to say. Is that surprising to anybody that Peter would have something to say? Verse 16, men and brethren, this scripture has to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Peter's searching for answers to the replacement of Judas. He goes back to the Psalms, something that David wrote, He says, this scripture has to be fulfilled. Peter's doing a good job of looking to God's word in a time of making a decision. And this little section of Acts really gives us insight on making decisions. I'm going to suggest something as we go through these few verses that it's possible that they did make an error in choosing Judas' replacement. We don't know that for sure. The scripture doesn't come out and say that they picked the wrong guy. We're just left with the book of Acts and really to try to decide with ourselves. But the first thing that we see is sometimes God's word is to be fulfilled, but it's through his timing and his way. And we're not the ones necessarily that are going to fulfill it. God would pick a replacement for Judas, but it would be in God's time. We always have to ask, am I kind of forcing this issue? Here I have the promise of God, but I'm trying to fulfill it. What comes to my mind is maybe marriage. Maybe you're considering being marriage, and you read to the Proverbs, and it says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. 
It doesn't even say he who finds a good wife finds a good thing. It just says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And you, like Peter, says, well, I'm going to fulfill this scripture. This scripture needs to be fulfilled, so I'm going to go find a wife. Well, you may want to allow the Lord to lead that process. Amen? Verse 17, for he who has numbered with us and obtained a part in the ministry, speaking of Judas, the ultimate betrayal, he was numbered with us and he even earned a part in the ministry. We know he was the treasurer, but he betrayed Jesus Christ. I am thankful the fact that Jesus allowed himself to go through the betrayal with Judas because in our lives we'll go through betrayal. We'll go through times where we love and we pour out ourselves only then to have it turn back to be an ultimate betrayal. Disciples know what that is like. It's also a reminder to us that we can be around the things of Christ but not be in Christ. So Judas is around the things of Christ, but he hasn't given his heart and life to Jesus Christ. Verse 18, now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and his entrails gushed out. Now if you've eaten dinner, you're probably a little queasy at this point. As you read verse 18, you'll wanna write down Matthew 27 verses three through 10. When Judas betrayed Christ, he was given money. He threw that money back into the temple. With that money, they bought a potter's field, and that's what's referred to here. Then Judas went and hung himself, and apparently after committing suicide, hanging himself, the rope broke, and his body fell and was burst open, and his entrails gushed out. I always like to consider the difference between Judas and Peter. Judas, we know, betrayed Christ, but Peter denied Christ. Peter, however, like we studied a few weeks ago in John 21, he returned to the Lord. Conviction always brings us back to the Lord. Condemnation brings us to self-destruction. It brings us ultimate to that place of suicide. Maybe suicide is something that you're wrestling with. I think suicide is ultimately the enemy's playground. He loves to plant lies in our heads that there's no hope, that there's no point in living. And if you're considering that, know ultimately that that's the enemy's work in your life. And Jesus came to give life and to give it more abundantly. He's the one who gives life and takes life away. He's got a purpose for your life. And like Peter, run to the Lord and don't run away from the Lord. We continue reading in verse 19. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akla Dama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and no one live in it. So the Psalms speaks to this field, Psalm 69, if you want to write it down. It remains desolate, let no one live in it, and let another take his place, Psalms 109. Verse 8. So Peter's piecing together two psalms, and he's saying this psalm speaks of a field that's going to go desolate, and then also speaks that another one needs to take his place. So we need someone to take Judas's spot. So he's not making an unbiblical decision, but is the Lord leading in this decision? So read with me from verse 21 down to verse 26. Therefore, of those men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, being from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barabbas, 
whose surname was Justice, and Matthias. Now, may I suggest to you there could be a third option that's not listed, and it's the Apostle Paul. That the Apostle Paul could have been the one that was in God's heart and mind to be this 12th apostle. And we do know that Paul referred to himself as apostle much through his writings. I don't know about you, but a lot of times I've got, God, here's option A and here's option B. And I'm not even open to the fact that God may have C. God's over here going, come on, Eric, you knucklehead. I've got C and D and E and F, but it's only A and B. And it seems to me like Peter and the other apostles kind of bring this to the Lord. We need a replacement. We need a replacement now. And here's your two choices. And I can really relate to that. All right, God, I'm ready to make a decision here. And here's my two choices. Now I'm going to roll the dice and see which one you choose, God. (laughs) Verse 24. And they prayed and said, so they did pray, you, O Lord, know the hearts of all men. Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So I can't say emphatically that they made a mistake here. It's a possible error. The Lord doesn't come out and say, This was a mistake for Matthias. Here's a few things to consider is they moved when they should have been waiting. They moved when they should have been waiting. God says, I want you to pray. I want you to hold tight. I want you to wait. I don't want you to do anything until you've received the promise of the Father. And so they went ahead with an action before the Lord had given that promise. They moved when they should have been waiting. Also, they seem to be pressured by the need. Have you ever been there? We have a need, so we've got to put somebody in there. And I've seen this over the years in ministry when the Lord calls someone on or they move out even under bad circumstances like Judas. The tendency is like, we've got to have somebody in there. God called this person, and so now there's this big void in the ministry and these needs, and so I'm pressured by the need, and we've got to put somebody in there. And if it's not who the Lord's called, it never turns out well. I don't always follow this, but I sure try to. If someone's pressuring me into a decision and it says, you have to have a decision by two o'clock today, guess what my decision is? It's no. (laughs) That's my decision. Because if I don't have time to pray about it, to get into God's word, to seek godly counsel, to go through that process, it's an easy decision. It's no. If the car salesman's saying, if you walk off the lot, you don't get it, I don't get it. I don't want the van, right? There'll be another minivan that will come. So may we not be pressured by the need, whether it's a need in ministry or a need in life. Give God the opportunity to lead. We never hear again of Matthias as we continue through the book of Acts, nor do we ever read of casting lots again. This isn't a way that God wants us to make decisions as he has given the power of the Holy Spirit to us. So if you were trying to make a choice about a job, you wouldn't get dice out and go, you know what, if I roll numbers three through six, I'm gonna take job B. If I roll one and two, I guess I didn't quite do the odds right, but maybe you're favoring the other job. I'm gonna take this job. You get the point, right? You cast lots, you draw straws. It's not the way that the Lord would desire to lead us. He desires to lead us through his word, He desires to lead us through his Holy Spirit, through godly counsel. Now, I've got a hunch, because you're here, and it's a Wednesday night, 
that there's some of you, if not many of you, where you're trying to make a decision tonight. You're going, oh, I don't know what I should do. And there's this need that's been placed in front of me. And I've got my two choices. May I encourage you to take as much time that is needed so that you know that the Lord is leading. You know that he's given you direction. You know the peace in which he's giving you. So how do you make decisions? Because we do need to be a people that make decisions. We can't be stuck in the valley of indecision forever. The first is, what does scripture say? And a lot of times, God has answered, and we don't need to pray anymore because God's word's already said what we should do. This is a no-brainer. We don't need to pray about it. He said right here in his word, this is something he wants us to do or he doesn't want us to do. Frankly, those are the easier decisions. It's the decisions where necessarily there's not chapter and verse four. Why did God do that? Why didn't he write about a thousand more pages to cover every situation that we'd ever go through in life, right? Because he wants relationship, that's why. So he covered the major things, but he leaves all of the minor decisions in life where we would seek him. So we go to the word of God first, and then something very practically in making a decision is I go back to the children of Israel When they were going through the wilderness, what guided them? It was a cloud. And we know from the Psalms that they went under the cloud. The wilderness in Israel, peninsula, going towards Egypt as they're traveling through this region is extremely barren, hot, miserable. Where would you go if there were shade? Right underneath it. They simply had to walk under the provision of God. They had to walk where the shade was. And as we're making decisions in life, we go to God's word, we go to godly counsel, and many times I try to walk where the peace is. And over time, you can start to feel, this is where God is. This is what he's doing. I have peace in this direction. But here I'm going in this direction. I don't have peace in this direction. And God's leading that way. He's leading with the cloud. So we leave this small paragraph on decision. We go into chapter two with the outpouring of the Spirit. When the day of Pentecost had fully come and they were all with one accord in one place. The day of Pentecost is one of the feasts that's listed for us in Leviticus chapter 23. There's seven feasts that God says are my feasts. All of the feasts are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We look at the feast of Passover. Jesus is the Lamb of God. That's the first feast. The Lamb was slayed, the blood of the Lamb put on the doorpost. Judgment passes over. Jesus is the Passover Lamb. The feast of unleavened bread is no leaven, gluten free, absolutely, in your, not really, just yeast. Yeast is different than gluten. But. There was no leavened in your bread during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then they would actually hide the unleavened bread in their home and go and search for it. And Jesus is that loaf, the bread of life, that's without any sin. Yeast always alluded to sin. And he was hidden in his burial. And we find him in his resurrection. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread points to Christ's burial the perfect sacrifice for our sins. First fruits was on the first day of the week, Sunday. Who is risen on the first day of the week? Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of the feast of first fruits. The Bible says he's the first fruits of the resurrection, that just as Jesus rose, we too will rise from the dead. Well, that leads us to the fourth feast, which is the Feast of Pentecost. It was 50 days after Passover, 
it was a feast of celebration, a feast of harvest, you would present your new grain to the Lord. Leviticus 23 tells us the priests would take two loaves of bread and lift it to the Lord in worship. These loaves had yeast in them. And it symbolizes God's work in the church, God's redemption of sinful man. The Jew and the Gentile, two loaves, both sinful but saved in Jesus Christ. And it's no accident that God gives the power of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Each feast is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's three more feasts that I believe will be fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So when it says the day of Pentecost, it's for a specific reason. Notice the unity there in one accord in one place. If you haven't discovered this yet, there's a unity that happens only through prayer. The one accord that we long for, we think of an illustration of being in one accord and you think of the conductor of the symphony and that symphony is in perfect harmony. And how do we get there with our spouse? How do we get there with our kids? How do we get there as the family of God? It's a byproduct of spending time in prayer together. You can just feel it when you log time together with people in prayer. It seems like as a family, if we get away from this just a little bit, I can feel it. Not, the, not that things are bad, but when we get into the place of praying together, just simple prayers together at the beginning of the day, we're, we call it family prayer. We just gather together, we're gonna, we're gonna pray together. There's a unity that, that I feel. We're in one accord together. As a staff, we gather together and we make it a priority to pray together. And sometimes they're not these grandiose, you know, these and thou's type of prayers where it feels like heaven meets earth and all these kind of things. They're, they're simple, heartfelt prayers, but there's a unity that comes through praying together. This one accord experience took place because they logged time together in prayer. Verse two, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven of rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. So on top of their head were these tongues of fire. Why fire? Fire represents the presence of God. You remember the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, where the bush was on fire, but it wasn't consumed. It represented the presence of God. In Exodus 24, God says that his glory is like a consuming fire. What I like about this tongues of fire on their head and the location that God put it is you couldn't see it for yourself in your own life, but you could see it in your neighbor's life, the person that you were with, your friend's life, as God's power was coming upon them. And God's power coming upon us his love coming upon us, his spirit coming upon us isn't so that we can see it and we can glorify ourselves, but somebody else can look upon our lives and see that our life has been consumed by the Lord. Verse four, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So notice this is something that the Holy Spirit was doing in their lives. You can't take a class to learn how to speak in tongues. If you've ever been a part of a church that says we're offering the class to teach you how to speak in tongues, you can offer a class about the gifts of the Spirit. You can offer a class about understanding the gift of tongues. But once someone starts saying, you know, I bought a Honda and I should have bought a Yakamaha and you say that really fast and then you've got the gift of tongues. No, it doesn't happen that way. 
It happens through the Holy Spirit. This is utterance that's given through the Holy Spirit. At this point, for a lot of people, it's like, I don't understand this. I don't understand that God would give these unknown tongues to them where they're speaking in a language that they don't know and they don't understand. In 1 Corinthians, it tells us that speaking in tongues, the purpose of it is to edify our spirit, that the Lord gives this to us where it's like worship, we go as far as we can with words that we know, then he gives the utterance of tongues to some so that their spirit can be edified. Also in 1 Corinthians, it tells us that it's directed towards God. And we'll see that here in a few more verses. Prophecy is geared towards the body of Christ, but tongues is geared towards God. So if you're in a service where the gifts of the spirits are being operated and someone speaks in tongues, it's to be done in decency and in order, then there would need to be an interpretation of that tongue and it would be directed towards the Lord because that's what scripture tells us. If someone speaks in tongues and then someone else gets up and says, my dear little children, hear this, that's a word of prophecy and it's not an accurate interpretation of that tongue. And so those are some reasons why the Lord gives the gift of tongues. It's to worship the Lord. It's to edify one's own spirit. And we do know from 1 Corinthians that if it's used in a public setting, there's to always be interpretation so that people can be edified. Otherwise, people come in and they go, I wasn't edified, I wasn't built up. And God wants everyone to be built up as they gather together. So let's see what happens when there's this response to the gift of tongues. And there they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in their own language. God gives tongues at the perfect time as God is missional, as he cares for the nations of the world. The nations of the world would come and gather at Pentecost. Jews would come, this was a pilgrimage feast, back to Jerusalem So they're from the upper room, they're hearing their own language, and they begin to gather around and ask questions in verse 7. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, Elamites, and dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judah and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia. And we're going to talk about the geographical regions br- briefly because this is Asia Minor. So all in the Asia Minor region, they're hearing their own language. Perga, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. This is North Africa going to the other side of the Mediterranean. Verse 21, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. God has a heart to reach the nations. At the conception of the church, the message of the resurrection of Christ goes to the world. Isn't that awesome? Long before Facebook, long before Twitter, long before the internet, God had gathered the nations together at this place to hear the message of God. They're speaking these things. The Galileans, they don't know these languages, but the ones around are hearing their own languages being spoken. Notice 
the wonderful works of God. It's directed towards God. It's praise, it's adoration, it's worship to God. They were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said they are full of new wine. Sets the stage for Peter to give his first message, to give clarity to these things. And I want to bring clarity or try to on this issue of tongues. First is, if you missed last week's service, go back and listen to it. Pick up a CD in the media window or listen to it on the church's website because it really led into this study. And then for tonight's study, I do want to say this, is the gifts of tongues is something that could be given to any believer. And we know that we're to seek God on the best gifts that he desires to give to us. We should be open to the spiritual gifts that God would want to give in our lives. And my opinion is, why would we be afraid of anything that God gives? We shouldn't be afraid of anything that the Lord gives. But will everybody speak in tongues? I don't think so. Because of 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and Romans 12, not everybody possesses all of the same gifts. And if you're in one of those where you think every believer is going to speak in tongues, then why don't you believe that every believer has the gift of teaching? Or every believer has the gift of administration? Or every believer has the gift of mercy? Nobody wants the gift of mercy. Everybody wants the gift of tongues. And then no one's saying, you know, everybody's got the gift of mercy. They just need to exercise it. So God, in his sovereign will, he gives his gifts as he sees fit. Our job is to be open to any gift that he may desire to give. And as you have that heart, the Lord may give to you the gift of tongues. And in your mind, it will be difficult for you because you're like, I'm giving utterance by the Spirit to speak in an unknown language to me. This doesn't make any sense. But remember what the scripture says. It's for the edification of your spirit. It's gonna build up your spirit in a very unique way. And the Lord knows that that's a gift that you need. And if it's ever to be used in, with other people, then God is gonna be faithful to give interpretation as well. And if the Lord doesn't give you the gift of tongues, don't sweat it, just like if the Lord doesn't give you the gift of mercy. I don't see any of you questioning your salvation because you don't have the gift of mercy. You know, or going, I don't really know if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit because I don't have the gift, gift of mercy. And you go, okay, Lord, I know and trust that you have what's best for me. And remember, what's the purpose of the empowering of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit? It's to live a life of agape love. It's to be a witness, to be empowered, to be able to be a witness. So the evidence of being filled with the Spirit is the fruit of love in our lives, not a particular gift. If you have questions on this, you know, please let me know. Let the pastoral staff know. I desire that everybody would have as much clarity on this as possible. They're saying, you guys are a bunch of drunks. Peter stands up and answers them and gives his first sermon. Notice just a few days prior, some 50 days prior, he was denying Christ and he's been restored, filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's a man who was coward and afraid. Now he's standing strong and bold in the power of the Spirit. Verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the 11, raised his voice and said to them. I like this. Even though Peter's speaking, the rest of the 11 are with them. And we've got to give it to Matthias, this newest apostle. He's standing up and being counted for. 
And when someone gets up and speaks the, the word of God, man, stand with them. Maybe as a husband and wife team, you know, your wife or your husband sharing with your neighbor and you're, you're there praying. You're saying, you know, I'm, I'm standing with you and I'm praying even though I'm not the one who's speaking in this particular situation. He raised his voice and said to them, men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. So now we have the spirit moving through the teaching of God's word. Notice there's no interruption here. It's not that Peter's preaching and teaching while everybody's speaking in tongues. One of the complaints that I hear sometimes is, well, you don't give any opportunity for the spirit to move. Well, the spirit doesn't interrupt itself. So the tongues ceased when it was time for Peter to speak the word of God. And it's frustrating to me when God says, we do things in decency and order and people wanna have services where someone's speaking in tongues while the teaching of God's word is going on. And you can see for yourself here, they stop speaking in tongues when Peter starts preaching the word of God. The spirit's moving through the preaching of the gospel. Verse 15, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. He's saying it's 9 a.m. Jumbo liquor's not even open yet. The drive through liquor store doesn't even open till 10. There's no way that we could be sloshed here. And now he says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And you'll notice throughout Peter's message as he's referring to the word. He's going back to the word. The Spirit's using the word of God. And Peter has invested God's word into his heart and his life. And Peter didn't get notice on this and saying, well, at Wednesday night at about 6.50, you're gonna be up to teach, so be prepared. This comes out of Peter's lifestyle, his love for Christ, his love for the word, his time spent in prayer. So he's quoting out of Joel chapter two, and it shall come to pass in these last days, says God. Notice the emphasis on these last days, that the last days have begun now at the pouring out of the spirit, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions. May we pray for this for our children, for our grandchildren, for the children of this church. The Spirit can do more in a moment in the lives of our children than we can do in a lifetime. And if anything else, this is what they need. They need the move of God's Spirit in their life. Your sons and your daughters, they'll prophesy, they'll see visions. The old men shall dream dreams. If you're having dreams instead of visions, well, then I guess you're an old man. (laughs) Verse 18. And on, me, and on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. On my servants, God says, he's gonna pour out his spirit and they're gonna receive messages from the Lord. I will show wonders in heaven and above and signs in the earth beneath. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the first sign of the last days is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The last sign of the last days is when God starts to turn the moon into blood. And this is pointed out in the tribulation. We see from Revelation chapter four to Revelation chapter 19. And I personally believe we'll already be raptured up and taken up to heaven during that tribulation period because God has poured out his judgment upon Jesus Christ and we're not appointed unto wrath. But those will be the last signs 
leading up to the day when Christ returns, the awesome day of the Lord. And verse 21 says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The move of the Spirit is for the purpose of pointing out salvation through Jesus Christ. And what an invitation that God gives. Whoever, does he really mean it? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? Absolutely. And what a great message that we have to be able to celebrate and share with a lost and dying world, with people that are desperately looking for acceptance and love and forgiveness. God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. And in that moment that you turn to Christ and cry out to him for salvation, he's gonna be faithful to his promise. Those who call upon the name of the Lord, they're saved, they shall be saved. Verse 22, men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man arrested, or attested, excuse me, by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also knew. Saying God has put his stamp of approval on his son. He's verified, validified his son through the miracles, the wonders, the signs, and guys, you saw them. Peter is speaking to the group that crucified Jesus Christ. He was so afraid for his life just weeks prior. Now in the boldness of the Spirit, he's able to speak to them. In verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you've taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. This verse, to me, shows a beautiful balance that we find all the way through Scripture of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Let me point it out to you. By the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, Jesus Christ was to be crucified because it was God's plan before the foundations of the world. God had predetermined it. No surprises. It wasn't like the Father was going to the Son. Man, I can't believe, like, Adam and Eve actually ate the apple. I didn't see that one coming. What are we going to do now? There's the sin problem. God knew all along from the foundations of the world before he ever created Adam and Eve, it was predetermined that Jesus Christ would die for us. Amazing that God would love us that much. And he put into motion the plan of his son dying for our sins. But does that release those who killed Jesus Christ of their responsibility? Not at all. Continuing on, it says, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So God planned it, but you are still held responsible for your decision of crucifying Christ. Verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Don't you like that? God raised him up. Because Jesus is risen, he's defeated death. You might want to write down 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul goes into great detail, saying, death, death, where is your sting? As believers, we don't have to fear death any longer. Just like Peter quoted Joel, now he quotes from Psalm 16. For David says concerning him, so David's not talking about himself, he was talking about Jesus. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. 
Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. So Jesus' flesh rested in hope. What's hope? The confident expectation that God is good and does good. Hope is not a wish or a whim. Jesus was in this place of hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades. This is referring to Jesus. He knew his soul wasn't going to be left in the grave. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made me to know the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Here's a note that I wrote down that spoke to my heart this afternoon. I hope it speaks to yours too. The resurrection of Christ is the assurance of hope in every situation. The resurrection of Christ is the assurance of hope in every situation. Jesus did not stay in Hades. He didn't stay in his grave. He was risen from the dead. In our life, we will go through our grave-like experiences. Maybe everywhere that you look today, it feels and smells like dead bones. And our reaction is to not think that God is good and he does good in that current situation. Peter put it this way, because Christ is risen, we have a living hope in our current circumstances. And I know, just like some of you are facing decisions, others of you are facing really difficult circumstances. And in the midst of those circumstances, look at the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. It's significant. Because of the empty tomb of Christ, we know that death has been defeated. We know the power of sin has been defeated. The penalty of sin is defeated. But we also know that Christ is ruling and reigning sovereignly over the circumstances of our lives. And we go, God, this looks like death. This feels like death. This is death. But I know you're the God of the resurrection. And this is going to lead to life. I'm going to be with you for all of eternity, and I'm holding on to that. And at times, it's an anchor to our souls that's not based on feeling. Don't get me wrong. It's not that the resurrection of Christ is always going to just bring the warm fuzzies to your soul. It's something that we have to lay hold of by faith and go, God, my emotions are telling me this, but the empty tomb tells me that you're working in this situation, so I'm holding on to you. I'm trusting in you through this grave that I'm going through. Verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried, and this tomb is with us to this day. So Psalm 16 can't be speaking about David. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Jesus wasn't buried long enough for his body to see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of which we are witnesses. We've seen and experienced the resurrected Christ. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So the speaking in tongues is the promise of the Father. This movement of the Holy Spirit is the power of God that the Father promised to give to the disciples. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he, him, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Again, a clear reference to Jesus, this time out of Psalms 110. 
Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Christ whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. Could you imagine how quiet it was all of a sudden? Uh, the guy that you crucified a few weeks ago, oh, he, he's alive. And in fact, uh, he's the one that just poured out the Holy Spirit upon us. And I've got one more thing for you guys. In verse 37, going down to verse 39. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the, the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Notice the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit was poured out onto the disciples for them to speak in tongues, but also for them to preach the word in a powerful way that they couldn't do on their own to, to be a witness. Then the Spirit of God cut them to the heart. The Spirit of God, again, can do more in a moment than we could do in a lifetime. I don't know if you've had that experience where all of a sudden you know God's dealing with you. It's not the voice of the pastor. It's not the voice of a parent. It's not the voice of a neighbor. All of a sudden, the room gets real quiet. You might be at home alone with the Lord. You might be in your car. You might be listening to something on the radio. You might be sitting in church. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit's going, bam, I love you. I died on the cross for you. I want all of you. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will, will hit us and cut us to the heart. You're living in sin. This attitude doesn't glorify me. This action, it needs to go. Somebody maybe has been hounding on you on that particular issue for 10 years to no avail, and the Holy Spirit in a millisecond, all of a sudden, and you're going, what do I need to do? What do, what do I need to do, God? I, I can't stay in this, this place. There's, there's gotta be change. It's the Spirit. And this is, I think, particularly what we need to be praying for in our church, in our community, in our families throughout the world. As we have missionaries going out, we've got a team that's headed out next week to Uganda. We're gonna be praying for them this weekend in our weekend services. We've got a missions trip coming up to Detroit. You know what we really need is we need a move of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit can do more in a moment than we can do in a lifetime. What did Peter say to them? He said, repent. I want you to repent, be baptized. Receive that free gift of salvation. John the Baptist, Jesus, and the apostles all preached the message of repentance. So what is it? It's that you're headed in one direction and you do a 180. It's a change of mind and a change of direction. When we're sharing the gospel with people, we need to point out their need for Jesus Christ. Do you notice that Peter did that and he didn't hold back? He did it in love, but he said, guys, you killed Christ. You know, at some point we have to bridge that gap with someone and let them know that they're a sinner just like us. Otherwise, what are they getting saved from? That we don't understand it, we don't get it. We've gotta understand our need for Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit points out that sin and then in receiving Christ, we're turning away from our sin. It doesn't mean that we're gonna be perfect, but it does mean that we know receiving Christ is a change of direction in our lives. If we don't wanna change a direction, we shouldn't receive Christ. 
if we're happy in our sin, if we feel like our sin's working out well for us, that's not receiving Christ. The repentance doesn't save us, but it's a turning away from the sin and realizing I want my life to belong to Jesus Christ. Notice also in verse 39 that this message is to all generations, all generations. It was to those that Peter was speaking to, but it's also tonight. If you come on this Wednesday night and you're saying, you know what? I know that I know I've never given my heart and life to Jesus Christ. I've got to be honest with you in love. If you don't repent and believe in Jesus Christ, if you don't call out to the only name that can save you, you will go to hell. And you'll be eternally lost in that place. And there's no going back to redo that decision. It's the most important thing that you would do. But receiving Christ is much more than fire insurance. It's realizing his great love, realizing his sacrifice. It's hearing God's call and saying, you know what? I'm tired of being in sexual sin. I need forgiveness and freedom from sin. I'm tired of the bondage of alcohol. I'm tired of the bondage of drugs. I'm tired of the bondage of my own temper. And could anybody forgive me? Yes, absolutely. Could anybody change me? Yes, absolutely. It's Jesus Christ. And turn and believe and you're saved. And that's the beautiful thing of the gift of God. God doesn't go, well, if you come to Wednesday night study for six weeks, then you're saved. That's kind of nice you did that little prayer and repentance thing. But, but now you got to come for six weeks. Or Once you're tithing, that's when you really know you're saved. Now you believe you're saved. That's the amazing free gift of Jesus Christ that's given to us. Now notice the evidence of what happens in their lives as they're saved, as Christ begins to make changes and live through them. In verse 40, and with many other words, he testified it and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So we don't get the full account of Peter's message, but notice what he's saying here. He's saying, be saved from this perverse generation. This generation's going to hell in a handbasket and you're swimming in the river of sin and God wants to redeem you out of it. Not just stay where you are. Not just receive Christ and continue down this same stream. And if you notice, there's a perverse generation around us, isn't there? And it's nothing new. It's the same generation that Jesus and Peter were, same wickedness that they were dealing with. And God wants to rescue us out of it. We've got to understand that his sacrifice and his resurrection, his love is that strong to bring people out of the greatest pits out of the greatest places of sin and mire. Verse 21, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. So Peter didn't have to try to twist their arms. They were ready to receive and they were baptized. And that day about 3,000 were added to them. 3,000, 3,000. Is this number significant? Absolutely, because when the law was given, remember they were doing that dance with the golden calf? Idol worship, how many died the day the law was given? 3,000. What a bummer. Here's the law, and it was broken before it was even given. Do we need Jesus Christ as our Savior? Absolutely. Is it coincidence that when the Spirit was given, 3,000 were saved? No, it wasn't. This is God showing how he redeems through his Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. A lot of times people, I think, have a misconception of the book of Acts They think that it was home church and small church. And they go, well, we've got to get back to the book of Acts, and it's got to be completely home church and small church. And only small churches are good churches. And I open up my Bible, and I go, 
what's small about 3,000 people on the first day? And as you read through the first few chapters of the book of Acts, thousands were getting saved. There was nothing small about it. I'm going to put it very simply. It doesn't matter the size of a church. The size of a church doesn't determine the health of a church. I've seen a lot of really unhealthy small churches, and I've seen a lot of really unhealthy big churches. What's the key factor? People that are in love with Jesus, that are honoring his word, that are loving one another, loving those that don't know Christ as their savior. So don't get in your mind that the the book of Acts was just this holy huddle, the small, small little group. No, it was this expansion, this multiplication of the kingdom of God to those that didn't know Christ as their savior. Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. This was the overflow of a life that had been impacted by Christ is first they were committed to the apostles' doctrine, which is the teaching of God's word. When Christ wins someone's heart, they fall in love with the word of God. It just starts to happen. Not that it's always easy to be in God's word or that it's just always gonna come natural, but there's this strange sense inside of them where it's like, man, I woke up this morning and like I wanted to read my Bible. It was crazy. I never wanted to read my Bible before. What's going on? Jesus Christ is in you. He's given you a hunger for good things. And we make that part of our life and we say, this is something I can't let go of is I'm gonna be in the word. I'm gonna be in the word collectively. I'm so blessed that you guys are here on a Wednesday night. I know your life is busy. Maybe tonight you're like, I just don't have time to go. I gotta get groceries. I gotta do laundry. Isn't coming to church so much more fun than doing laundry, you know? And you made the sacrifice and you pressed through and you said, I'm gonna continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. You fight through all of the emotions. I'm gonna get in God's word. I know I need this. And I think these things build. Apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Check this out. They liked being together. They just liked hanging out with believers. And this wasn't even anything that was necessarily organized. Not that organization is bad, but this was completely organic. They'd been touched by the love of Jesus Christ. So like, I just want to hang out with other believers. Try this. This is radical. I promise you're going to love it. Is start hanging out with believers on your own initiative. Whether it's here with relationships that you have or you don't have. I got a little inside track on all of you. You guys sit in the same places, you know? And guess what? That breeds an awesome opportunity for fellowship, especially on a, a Wednesday night. And they have free pie over at Village Inn. Well, kind of free over on Village Inn on Wednesday night. If you buy anything, they'll give you a free piece of pie. So you can go, hey, there's some calories right across the parking lot. Let's just go enjoy eating over there and and enjoy hanging out. But someone's got to take the initiative to make invites over to Village Inn or open up your home. You've got believers that you know are on your street. Hey, let's get together and let's play Yahtzee or canasta or you know hand and foot and you start playing a game before you know it does anybody play hand and foot the card game a couple of you yeah Yeah. so you get together and you play some cards and you start thinking talking about the things of christ one of the questions that i love asking people when you get together with other believers is what's your story 
What's God's story in your life? How did you get saved? And what are the things that he's doing in your life? One of the things that I think we all agree on in our culture is we're relationship deprived. I call it the garage door society and we're all guilty of it, right? Whether you have a garage door or not. Is it's like this, you get home, you open up your garage door, park your car, close your garage door and you say, keep out. It's me and my TV tonight. Thank you very much. I'm going to turn it on. And God's saying, open the door. Open the garage door. Let people in. Invest in relationship. The scripture tells us that we're to be in fellowship even more as the day is approaching. Church, we need each other. We need to be linked together in relationship, fellowship. And then the next thing that we see in breaking of bread, which is communion, as they were eating together, they were remembering Christ's sacrifice and in prayers. This is the marching order for a healthy Christian, for a healthy church, is continuing steadfastly in these four things. Verse 43, then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. This isn't the kind of fear like, oh no, God's gonna judge me, but this is the kind of fear of, I don't wanna do anything to hurt his heart. God was doing miracles for the purpose of pointing people to Christ. And verse 44, now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and their goods and divided them among their all as anyone had need. Another byproduct of the gospel and love for Jesus Christ is they cared for each other's needs. If we see another believer in need, that we reach out to them and we share with them. In verse 26, so continually, daily, with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Wow, 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 wow. <laughs> Sounds like church was pretty simple. Very, very fun. I love God because he loves me and I love being around believers and we're just so happy to be here that we even have food. God, this is great. You gave me food with other brothers and sisters in Christ. I just want to do this a ton. And other people looked on and said, wow, they've got something special. I want that too. And God just added to the church. It was God's job to do the work. It's God's job to bring the salvation. Psalm 16, he says, I will build my church. It's his faithful promise. Maybe tonight we backtrack and simplify a whole lot and say, Jesus, you died for me. You rose again. You're exalted to your throne. I'm completely forgiven, completely. And I get to hang out with a bunch of forgiven people and we're gonna eat together and be thankful for what you've done for us and then watch you add to the church. Fun stuff. So let's stand and pray.